This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. We are wrapping up our series to do in 22. This is lesson number seven. They say that seven is the perfect number, so I guess we'll just end with perfection today, whatever that means. If you haven't been with us, this series was motivated by James where he says, don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers. We don't get credit from God for just talking about how we need to do better. We, uh, God only gives credit for doing. We've got so much to cover today. Uh, let's jump right into our lesson. We're going to pick up the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter 22, where he was moving through different towns and villages, teaching and preaching. Now, at this point in his ministry, he had already fallen out of favor with the religious establishment because he had spoken out against their hypocritical ways. And so they began to dream, they began to scheme how to bring Jesus down. Their goal was very simple and summarized in this verse in Matthew twenty-two fifteen. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. That was the strategy. Their strategy was not to hire hit men, Uh, and, and take him out physically, but their strategy was to just trap him in his words to discredit him. Now, as, as kind of an aside, we often see this same strategy in our court system today. Um, uh, attorneys will question and interrogate and cross-examine, and, and, and many times their goal is to find some inconsistency and trap you in your words in order to discredit all parts of your testimony. I learned that firsthand a few years ago. I was subpoenaed to serve as a witness in a particular case and uh, by the prosecuting attorney subpoenaed, and, and they felt that I had some information that would be helpful. And uh, even though I, you know, as I prepared myself, I, I don't necessarily, in the attorneys, you know, they try to grill you and they try to prepare you so that you don't make a fool out of yourself there. Um, but anyway, I, I don't necessarily consider myself uh, quick thinking on my feet, but I do make my living by speaking publicly, and at different times, I've, I've been sent to other countries by our world missions department to be a mediating voice in, in churches where, where there had been conflict, there had been church splits and division. Uh, so, so I thought, you know, as I take the stand... I thought, you know, I can, I can probably handle myself okay and stay calm and answer in a way as to not put myself in a position to where they could trap me and discredit my testimony. Well, well, by the end of my time on the witness stand, and, and, and uh, it was about 10 hours, actually it was about 10 minutes, but it felt like 10 hours, it felt like it lasted forever, and, and, and I'm really embarrassed to say that after those few minutes on the stand, I was so frazzled. I about lost my salvation three different times. They had rattled me so much. Seriously, I had almost come to the point of being willing to be put in prison the rest of my life because I wanted to bring some major bodily harm to that defense attorney. And, and I'm sorry, I, I, I know that doesn't sound very godly for your pastor to admit, but I was there. And, and, and that day I came to understand why some witnesses change their story on the stand. You know, they don't mean to. But they've had rapid-fire questioning, and, and the witness 
what will happen is, you know, we'll realize, oh, they kind of backed me into a corner here, and I answered in a way I really didn't mean to, and so we'll try to clarify our answers, and we'll be reprimanded and reminded all we're supposed to do is just answer yes or no. And seriously, by the time you get off of the stand, you don't know your name, and all you do is want to hurt somebody. Um, well, the religious leaders embraced this technique. They took it upon themselves to try to trap Jesus in, in some kind of theological error. And let me detail this strategy. There were three phases of what I call Operation Trap Jesus in his words. Phase one looked like this. The, the big dogs uh, or, or the head hogs, you know, the, the, the upper leadership of the Pharisees, at this point, wanted to stay out of the limelight. And so they called in their underlings. We might just call them the junior Pharisees. They were up-and-coming leaders that hadn't quite made it to the big leagues yet. They were still in the minor leagues. And they were given very specific instructions. They said, you junior Pharisees, of course not realizing that Jesus knew every one of them by name, could read their thoughts. But, but the senior leadership said, you know, since, since nobody knows you, Jesus won't suspect that you're trying to trap him in his words. And so, here's what we want you to do. Go, find Jesus. He's always got big crowds around him, blend in with the crowd. After Jesus finishes his message and gets to the Q&A, like he always does, raise your hand, and it's important that you follow our instructions to the T. So they did. They blended in with the crowd. Jesus finished his lesson. The Q&A session began, raised their hands, Jesus pointed at them and said, what's your question? And here's what they said. First of all, they buttered him up. And they didn't just do what a lot of people do, and, and, and I'm always grateful for the affirmation that you give me after a service, and sometimes there's not affirmation, but most of you, you will, you will affirm me. And, and, and here's what most people will say as they walk by, good job good message. They didn't do that because their superiors had thought through this, and, and they instructed them to give a meaningful, well-thought-out compliment that they hoped would disarm Jesus. Here's what they said in verse 16. Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, if you say that to me, if you walk by today and say, Joe, you're a man of integrity, I would say that's the ultimate compliment. And then if you would say, you teach truth, that's the cherry on top. But they said, Jesus, you're a true man of integrity. You teach truth. And then they go on with the compliment and they say, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. In other words, you don't cater to the wealthy. Some people do that. You don't cater to the poor. Some people do that. You can't be bought. You act on principle. Well, after that compliment, they start into their question. Now, now the question is a, is a very interesting one. It's what I call an IRS question. Uh, seriously, they, they ask an IRS question, but then Jesus' response is even more interesting. And to answer the IRS question, Jesus responds with a coin trick. Let me read it for you. This is awesome. Verse 17. Tell us then, remember this is the question, tell us then, what's your opinion? 
Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, most of us, we just read right past that. But there, there are so many things here in, in the next couple of sentences. And I'm going to just take a few minutes here to kind of break this down. Um, first, in this IRS question, partially they were asking, should we pay taxes to this Roman government that is so incredibly wicked? Which, by the way, um, some of you have probably wondered the same thing, haven't you? You know, do we, should we pay taxes to our government that at times has no regard for godly principles and sometimes they don't support the sanctity of life and they don't support biblical principles of marriage and, and morality? And, and so, you know what, you've questioned, you know, how can I pay my taxes and know that my pac- taxes are going to support programs that are far from biblical? So that was part of the implication there. But, but that's, not all I want, uh, that, that's not all I want to point out here. Let, let's go a little bit de- deeper into this. This tax that they were referring to was a poll tax. And every single Jewish person had to pay this tax, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, uh, regardless of whether they made any money or not. It was put on the head, and so every person, when Israel came under direct Roman rule, this tax was required of them. And so this question was a good question to trap Jesus. Because if Jesus says, yes, you need to pay your taxes, it gets him in trouble with the Jewish patriots who hated Rome. But but if if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, it gets him in trouble with Rome. So as this question is asked, everybody thinks, oh, Jesus is about to be trapped in his words. Well, here's what happens next in verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites! And remember that word. Um, Remember that word because this goes way deeper than just a quick surface reading. So remember that what he's calling them, a hypocrite. Um, You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? And, and Jesus at that point, and, and the scripture doesn't say this, I'm just kind of reading between the lines, says, why are you trying to trap me? And maybe he starts digging in his pockets. You know, it's like he's looking for something. And maybe he, he, he goes back and, and gets his wallet and maybe looks in his wallet. And, and, um, and then maybe he says, you know, sorry, um, I, I guess I don't have any cash on me. Um, so he says to the Pharisees, verse 19, show me the coin used for paying the tax. So what they do? Listen, very significant. They brought him a denarius. Now, a denarius was the equivalent of, of a daily wage. And, and on the front of the denarius was an image of Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription around the edge said, son of the divine Augustus. On the back of the coin... It proclaimed Caesar to be the high priest of the Roman religion. So everything about this coin was super offensive to the Jewish people. But that wasn't the worst part of it. Let me tell you the worst part of it since you want to know. Let's let's keep digging a little bit here. The worst part was that the Pharisees 
the Pharisees had this coin on them. You say, well, Joe, what's so bad about them having this coin? Let me tell you. This means that the Pharisees, and, and catch this, the religious leaders had one of these coins with an image of Caesar in their pockets. And in a gif, I'll explain why this was so big. Well, Jesus looks at the coin they showed him, and in verse 20, he asked them, whose portrait is on this? Whose inscription? And Well, at, at this point in the conversation, these Pharisees, even though they were junior Pharisees, they were smart. And, and again, just kind of reading between the lines here. But I, I, I wonder if they didn't go silent. And, and you know when you're so frustrated, you, you know what you do? You go, <sighs> I wonder if they just didn't go, And the wind goes out of their sails. Because these smart religious Pharisees, I wonder if it didn't begin to dawn on them what Jesus was getting across. And you say, Joe, I still don't know where you're going on this. Well, we may not see it. But I guarantee you the crowd that day saw it. And here's why. Because the crowd had just witnessed the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the big dogs pulling this coin out of their pockets that had an image of Caesar on it that said, Son of the Divine Augustus, which according to the Jewish beliefs, carrying around anything that proclaimed someone to be a god was idolatry. It was a violation of one of the Ten Commandments. This was huge. According to their laws, the leaders were caught in idolatry. And that is why I think Jesus started this out by saying, you hypocrites, because he's about to get into that. You know, you guys know better, and you're leaders. You know better. And so for those junior Pharisees at that moment, it, it was, I, I think within them, it was like, checkmate, game winner, knockout, walk off, Drop the mic. Jesus wins. Now, just a little fun fact from history to show you how big of a deal this was. Five years before this event, Pilate had actually brought shields into the city of Jerusalem with an image of Tiberius Caesar, on the image on the shields, and, and he didn't have them put in the temple, just brought them into the city. Well, people started rioting. They, they actually quit their jobs. They left their crops untended. That they were so upset, they paralyzed daily life. Well, Pilate relented and, and removed the shield, the shields. So understand that carrying around anything with an image of Tiberius Caesar in this day was a big, big deal. And so these junior Pharisees, all the cockiness gone, they know it's over. They, they sheepishly answer Jesus' question of whom, whose image it is. I think they say it in this tone of voice, Caesar's. And because I'm kind of a rascal, if I would have been Jesus, I would have enjoyed this moment a little bit longer. I would have twisted the knife a little bit. And I would have said, so let me get this straight. You have Caesar's image that proclaims him to be a god? You have that in your pocket? 
Yes. Uh, uh, Furthermore, you have this image that proclaims Caesar to be a god in your pocket, and where are you right now? Well, we're at the temple, the holy temple. That's what I would have done, but Jesus was a better man than I was, and he just simply responded. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God what is God's. So that's the coin trick. When they heard this, they were amazed what they do. So they left him and went away. I mean, these junior Pharisees had gotten smoked by Jesus. And they couldn't get out of there fast enough. That was phase one. But it gets better. Phase two of Operation Trap Jesus in his words was this. The Sadducees enter the picture. Now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't get along. They I shouldn't bring this up, but they were about like Democrats and Republicans in Washington, D.C. I know that gives us heartburn, doesn't it? But, but history was actually being made because on this one thing, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were united. They both wanted to bring Jesus down. So the Sadducees say, it's, it's our turn. You, you junior Pharisees couldn't get her done. And so they come up with their own strategy, which was pretty much the same strategy of the junior Pharisees. They send people to blend in with the crowd. Jesus finishes his teaching. The Q&A session begins. They raise their hands to ask a question. Jesus points to one of them, and, and they start like this in verse 24. Teacher, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and have children from him for him. Now, now this sounds weird to us, um, but this law was in place to protect women in that day. Uh, and in ancient times, if a woman's husband died and they didn't have any children, there would be no one to take care of her, uh, nor would her husband's name be carried on. So the law said that the late husband's brother would then have to marry her. Even if he were already married, he would have to produce children through her so that his brother's name would be carried on and so the widow could be taken care of. So, so the Sadducees start off and tell Jesus the law, a law that Jesus already knew, but then they take, and we do this a lot of times, they take this law and, 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 and they make up a crazy situation that would never happen in a million years. And again, we do the same thing sometimes. Verse 25, now there were seven brothers among us. I'm telling you, this is crazy. The first one married and died. Since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, Every riddle, of course, has a question at the end. So here's the question, verse 28. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her. And, and, and again, the question wasn't anything close that would ever, uh, would ever happen. But as the Sadducees ask this question, the crowd probably leans in because they want to hear the answer from Jesus. Now, this right here kind of is the core. The, the Sadducees were really trying to get across. They were trying to show how ridiculous it was to believe in the afterlife. Because Sadducees did not believe in life after death. That's why they were Sadducee. But anyway, <clears throat> some of you said, huh? But, but they asked Jesus this trick question, and, and, and I love this. 
Jesus says something that causes them to do a slow burn. Verse 29, Jesus replied, You are in error. These are religious leaders. You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. Now that statement hurt. That was a major dig. Because these were religious experts. And and so saying that they didn't know the Scriptures was like saying to a doctor, well, doc, you don't know medicine. Or or, or saying to a chef, you don't know how to cook. Or, or, Or saying to a teacher, you don't know how to teach. You know, the Sadducees thought they knew Scripture. And for Jesus to say, you don't even know the Scriptures, that was a major zinger. Verse 30, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, this answer was a home run, and and, and the crowd loved it. They loved it when Jesus outsmarted the religious leaders because they were constantly, these religious leaders were putting a bunch of rules on the common person that they themselves weren't willing to keep. They, They were talkers, not doers. They needed a sermon series on to-do in 28 or whatever year this happened in. And, and so, in verse 33, when the crowds heard this, when, when they heard Christ's answer, they were astonished at his teaching. So again, Jesus smoked the religious leaders. That was phase two. The Sadducees left the crowd, really sad, you see. Well, that takes us to phase three of Operation Trap Jesus in his words. The Pharisees delighted, uh, decided to reload. And in verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. It was like, okay, we sent the junior Pharisees. They got smoked. The Sadducees sent their people. <clears throat> they got smoked. So the Pharisees called a special meeting, and they discussed, what do we do? Well, this time they enlisted the help of a leading attorney that in their minds would ask the perfect question that would surely deliver the knockout punch. And and, and the strategy was essentially the same. He was to go to the crowds surrounding Jesus. He was to blend in. He was was to wait until Jesus finished his talk and open it up for Q&A. He was to raise his hand, ask the question, and you've heard this question before in verse 35. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So in other words, Jesus, out of the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, um, which is the greatest? Well, at that time, there was a standard, if I could just say a standard Sunday school answer to this question. Everybody in the crowd would have known the answer. But, but I want to point out that this question probably wasn't the lawyer's real question. It was probably just a setup for the follow-up question. But he needed Jesus to <clears throat> commit himself to the standard answer first. And then he had a question that would put Jesus down on the canvas, or so he thought. So he asked, teacher, well, what's the greatest commandment? Verse 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And everybody in the crowd probably said, yeah, 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 we know that, and And by the way, they call this the Shema. And, uh, you know, even children could repeat this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Well, about now, the lawyer is is feeling pretty smug because Jesus answered exactly like he wanted him to. And so maybe, again, reading between the lines, maybe he opens his mouth to ask his follow-up question that that he thinks is going to send Jesus into the ropes 
But there was one small problem. Jesus didn't stop talking. He continued on. And I can imagine the lawyer's like, no, no, no. You're messing up my plan, Jesus. Because again, the first question was probably the little jab. The follow-up question was the uppercut. But Jesus kept talking and said in verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now let me uh, give something that's really important. This statement, love your neighbor as yourself, signaled a very important shift in the religious world in which Jesus lived as, as well as in our religious world today. Like many of us were raised, a person could claim to love God but treat people like dirt. And when they were confronted, they were saying, but the greatest commandment is to love God, and I'm loving God, and so God and I are good. I've been baptized, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray, I tithe. And if you would say, but look, look how you're treating your wife. Look how you're treating and avoiding so-and-so. And they say, yeah, but I'm loving God with all of my heart. So when Jesus said the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, he was signaling that loving God had a part B that required us to love people. In verse 40, he said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus said, your own Bible, you know, the law and the prophets, the the Old Testament, they hang on these two commandments, love God with every fiber within you. But then that love for God, the part B is, it's best authenticated, your love for God is best authenticated when you love each other. So, You listening? If we claim to love God, but we treat our spouse like dirt, that shows that we really don't love God that much. If we claim to love God, but are mad at so-and-so and can't be in the same room with them, we probably don't really love God. Jesus reduced all of the Jewish commands to two, love God with every part of you, then authenticate that by loving each other. Well, that brought up another problem. At this point in the first century, the word neighbor had a very clear definition. Leviticus 19 defined the word neighbor as another Jewish person. And and so when Jesus said you're to love your neighbor as yourself in the minds of the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were thinking, you know, that's doable. We can love other Jews like ourselves. Well, fast forward a few weeks down the road. Jesus throws them another curve. He's in a similar situation. Another lawyer comes up, asks him another trick question. And in response to that question, Jesus tells the story that we've come to know as the story of the Good Samaritan. And at the end of the parable, he answers the question, who is my neighbor? And and it's not an answer that pleases the religious leaders because Jesus changes the definition of neighbor. And now neighbor is not simply another Jewish person or another person that's similar to you or even someone that you necessarily like. Jesus makes an epic change in the definition of a neighbor. And now Jesus says that a neighbor is anyone anywhere with a need that you should meet. That's your neighbor. So what does that mean for us today? Who, who's our neighbor? We say, well, the person that lives right in the house right by us. Yes, they're your neighbor. But did you know that that meth addict is your neighbor, even if they don't live right by you? Did you know that the poor person that lives three blocks over from you is your neighbor? Did you know that that rich person that lives ten blocks away from you is your neighbor? 
Did you know that that person at work that is a pain in your side, that's your neighbor? Did you know that that person that never stops talking, that is so annoying, that's your neighbor? Did you know that that person that's a Raiders fan is your neighbor? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. So who is our neighbor? Our neighbor is anyone of any race in any geographical place that has a need that we can meet. Well, now Jesus takes this opportunity for something that we might call the official reveal. And what happens next would change the world. Are you ready? Jesus says to his disciples, and this is huge, this is epic. He blows them away and says in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new command I give you. To which the disciples probably thought, Jesus, wait a minute. You can't all of a sudden just give us a new commandment. Only God can do that. Who do you think you are? Plus, Jesus, earlier you said that all the commands could be reduced down to two. You know, love God with all your heart, then love your neighbor as yourself. So does this mean that the commandments will now go from the big two to the big three? What new command are you talking about? And he answers, he said, love one another, to which they probably thought, Jesus, for a new command, that's pretty underwhelming. Boring. Jesus, can't you come up with something a little more creative than this overused theme of love? But Jesus wasn't finished, and he added a stipulation. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And maybe at this time, Jesus says, you know, I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying here. And maybe he turns to Matthew and says, Matthew, do you remember when we first met? Yes, sir. Do you remember what you were doing when we first met? Yes, sir. Uh, What was it, Matthew? And maybe Matthew, he just kind of lowers his head, lowers his voice, and he says, "Um, I was collecting taxes. And and maybe Jesus said, Matthew, say it out loud. What were you doing? Say it out loud. Master, I was collecting taxes. Matthew, did you cheat people? Yes, sir. Did you keep a lot of that money for yourself? Yes, sir. But, but Matthew, despite that, do you remember what I said to you? I, I said, follow me. And maybe Jesus said, Matthew, for the rest of your life, the grace I extended you that day as a thief, as a cheater, a person that took advantage of the rich and the poor, I want you to extend that same grace to every thief, to every cheater, to every manipulator, to every single person you meet until the day you die. And then maybe he turns to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, do you remember? Do you remember where we met? Do you remember what we were what, what you were doing? You know, Nathaniel, you were dissing my family. You remember what you said, Nathaniel? You said, Nazareth? What good things can come out of Nazareth? And you know, you were dissing my mama? You were dissing my friends. You were dissing my community, my way of life, my football team. I actually added that part. But Nathaniel, do you remember? I didn't get in your face and yell at you. I didn't say, I'll show you. 
do you remember how I responded? I, I, I invited you to become one of my closest followers. And, and, and Nathaniel, I want you to extend that same kind of grace to everyone that says mean things or even writes mean things on Facebook about your family, about your kids, about your community, and even your ball team. And then maybe Jesus said, do all of you, all of you disciples here, do you remember that afternoon when I preached that strange sermon on on drinking my blood and eating my flesh. And of course, I was talking about communion, but people misunderstood. The crowd, crowds got nervous that day and they began to flake away and we lost a lot of people from the church that day. Do you, do you remember that? And they said, oh, how could we ever forget? And then maybe Jesus said as the cl- crowd was flaking away, I looked at your faces and I realized that every single one of you, you had thoughts about unfollowing me. Do you remember how I busted you? And I said, do you want to leave too? And do you remember that? Yes, sir. But do you remember how I responded? I, I loved you and I, I never held that over your head nor even brought it up to you again. And that's how I want you to treat each other. And that's how I want you to treat others that hurt you. And that's how I want you to treat those who say mean things about you. That's how I want you to treat those who are wealthier than you. That's how I want you to treat those who are poorer than you. That's how I want you to treat those people who are idiots on Facebook. I want you to love them as I have loved you. And Jesus might have said one more thing. You think you've seen my love for you so far? Well, you ain't seen nothing yet because in a few days on a hill that we've come to today referred to as Mount Calvary, I'm going to take this love thing to a whole new level. Well, then Jesus said, and this is huge, he unleashes a statement that should shake us as Christians. And Jesus gives us a, the result of loving as he, as he loved. And in John 13, 35, it says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, don't misinterpret this verse. Jesus is not saying that our love for one another will get us to heaven. That's not what he's saying. No. But Jesus is saying that when you love God with all of your heart and, and your soul and your mind and strength, it always involves doing. Remember the series doing and it will be best authenticated to others not by how you raise your hand during a great song in the service not by how many times you've read the bible through not whether you are doctrinally a calvinist or 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 a wesleyan or a pentecostal or whether you go to a baptist church or a methodist church or a christian church or you're one of those weirdos that goes to the church of god holiness None of those things, if you say, well, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist, I'm Church of God Holiness, I'm a, I'm a Catholic, none of those things will bring anybody to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, people will know you are a follower by how well you love each other. And, and compared to the extraordinarily complicated system of laws that first century Jewish people had grown up with, this was far, far less complicated, but in a way it was much more demanding than the rules-based system. And and I I, I would rather this not leave the room, okay? So this is just between us. It's just us here. If you give me a list of rules, I have such a devious mind that I can find a loophole. Honestly, sometimes I'm like a middle schooler. If you've ever parented a child through middle school years, you know what I mean. Uh, Well, Dad, you said not to be on Facebook this evening. I wasn't. I was on Instagram. You know, where there are rules, there are always cracks and loopholes. And 
And that's why when a church begins basing everything on their rules, their rules manual will get thicker and thicker and thicker because as people figure out a loophole, then the church will add another rule to take away that loophole. And, and here's the part that I don't want you to tell anybody. Promise? Uh, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye, or however that goes. If you give me a Bible, I can take Scripture and twist it take it out of context and justify about anything I want to do. A system of laws and rules provides a very ripe atmosphere for hypocrisy. But when Jesus walked into the loophole society of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he gave a new commandment. It closed the loophole, filled in the cracks. Now instead of thinking, well, so-and-so mistreated me and I know the Bible says to not return evil for evil but there's a little loophole the Bible doesn't say anything against you know I can give them the silent treatment you know I won't do anything bad to them I'll just give them the cold shoulder and 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 give them a dirty look with the new commandment to love as Jesus loved us that takes that loophole away the apostle Paul had such a way of taking Christ's principles and applying them to everyday life and he wrote In Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Why? Because Christ forgave you. So why should you be kind to those who've hurt you? Well, you say because the Bible says so. Maybe, but they didn't have a Bible when this was written. You should be kind to those who have hurt you because you have been forgiven. Husbands, why should you be patient With your wife after she's had a bad day, even though she lashes out at you? Because you've been forgiven. Why should you be compassionate to those who have made a mess out of their lives because of addictions and poor choices? Because you've been forgiven. Why should you not respond in an ugly way when people... When people who are on the other side of the fence from you on issues such as masks or vaccinations or politics or social hot buttons and they say things that are so ugly and divisive, why should you not respond back in an ugly way? Because you have been forgiven. There are some good people, but they've lost all respect from others because of their responses on social media. That stuff gets around. Some good people in this community have basically destroyed their witness because of the way they handle themselves on Facebook. So why should we be able to have some self-control when everybody else is going nuts and being ugly? Because we've been forgiven. And when you say, Pastor, you know, there are so many relationship issues today. There are so many marriage issues, parent-child relationships, uh, issues with exes and issues with coworkers and bosses. And so, Pastor, since we're finishing this seven-week series, you need to now start a seven-week series on relationships. And no, you don't need a seven-week series on relationships. You just need a three-by-five card with four words, love as Christ loved you. You don't need a series. Love is the command. There's no wiggle room. There's no space to cheat. There's no loophole. And that's what makes this new command so uncomplicated. Jesus doesn't give us a bunch of do's and don'ts when it comes to interaction with your family, your friends, your neighbors. And, and again, who is your neighbor? Those whom we have a need, those whom, whom have a need and we can help meet. 
But when it comes to our interaction with people, Jesus gives us a command. As Jesus loved us, so we're to love them. Why? Because we have been forgiven. And again, this doesn't save you, but it will cause people to see that you're a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. So as we wrap up our series to do in 22, let's, let's quit just talking about loving each other. Let's actually do it. And so this morning, let's determine which neighbor are we going to love and serve and invest in this week. Remember that neighbor may not be on our street, may not be on our side of town. They may not be on our little clique of friends, but our neighbor is someone that has a need that we can help meet. So which neighbor are you going to serve this week? So for our official wrap-up to this lesson and series, I want to read a scripture. You've all heard this scripture. Some of you memorized it. But as we begin loving our neighbor, maybe we all need to be reminded of some of the characteristics of love. This beautiful chapter, 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. Love is patient. Say the word patient. Patient. Love is kind. Say the word kind. It does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. Say, not rude. rude. So whether it's face-to-face or on Facebook, behind the back, love is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Love, Love doesn't blow up easily. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects. Say protects. Always trusts. Say trusts. Always hopes. Hopes. Always perseveres. Let's read this last, these last three words together. One, two, three. Love never fails. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.